0: As we come now to God's word, would you turn in your Bible to the book of Esther in chapter one? This is in the Old Testament, Esther in chapter one, as we start our read through the book of Esther. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our God, as we come before you now, would you humble us and help us to hear you? Would you speak through your word to your people? We are your servants. Help us then to bring you praise, bring light to our minds. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. This is the book of Esther in chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1 and, and read through the whole chapter. I think we can handle it. Uh, this is Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days." And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Sathar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris. Marsana and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, But also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath. In plenty, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is God's Word. I know that's a long beginning, but this is now the beginning of the book of Esther. We'll be taking several weeks now to read through the book. It's a fascinating and intricate book, but it's very difficult to preach. Because the book of Esther is a story, and it's a different kind of story than the story of the Gospels, where we see the life of Jesus or the story uh, in the book of the, the Judges or the books of the kings. Uh, those have elements of story, of course, in them, but they're more like a series of, of isolated episodes that kind of string together. So it's, it's, those are more like TV shows. But Esther fits together like one big whole whole movie. There's plot and drama and tension. There's a, there's a villain. There's betrayals and twists. And the author uses this structure uh, of story, and while he does that, he still bases these on real events of history. You can probably feel it here in the first chapter. This is a real time. It's during the reign of Ahasuerus, which is about 400 BC. It's during a, a real, it's in a real place, which is Susa, one of the four capital cities of Persia. There are real people here, like the lists of the eunuchs and the wise men that are really hard to pronounce, so I just kind of breeze by them quickly so you don't think too much about it. And there's real events. The book of Esther is, is about the origin of the Jewish celebration of Purim, which celebrates the time when the Jews were saved from extermination. So, the Book of Esther is both historic and literary, or you could say it's a true story. Um, because it's literary like this, we can't really just chop it up into little pieces. So, for example, if I were preaching on the Wizard of Oz, which I should not be doing, but if I were, if I were preaching on the Wizard of Oz and I, and I chopped it up piece at a time, you know, in the first sermon you might think that the Wizard of Oz is about farm life in Kansas. And in the second sermon you might think that the Wizard of Oz is about uh, bad weather and tornadoes and the importance of getting underground cellars. And, and in the third sermon you might think it's about munchkins. And, and we haven't even gotten to the Wizard of Oz. You can see the problem there. So, so with this, there's a, there's a difficulty here. We don't want to miss the whole of Esther and the whole of what God would tell us through Esther. We're still going to read through each chapter because I think it's important for us to hear it all, but it's best if you go home and you sit down in one sitting and just read all 10 chapters of Esther. It's not very long, It'll take you maybe, maybe 20 minutes. That's shorter than your favorite TV show. And, and that can be one of the ways we prepare for worship. You'll get the most if you can take it all in at once. But here, when we come for worship, we'll have to approach this differently. Not piece by piece, but we'll have to look at Esther according to the themes present in Esther, or the threads that run through the whole book. As we've read this first chapter, it kind of sets the stage here. We get to meet the Persian king. Uh, my Bible translates it; uh, the Hebrew version of it, a Maybe your Bible says Xerxes, which is the which is the Greek uh, version of his name. But we see what kind of king this guy is. We see how he runs. His kingdom. And there's all sorts of problems with it. We'll get to talk about most of those problems next week and all of what's going on with Queen Vashti then as Esther is introduced. But what's most interesting in this chapter is not just what's here. What's most interesting is what's not here. What's missing, which is God God's not mentioned once In fact, that's the the most, you know, common trivia about the book of Esther I guess trivia that's not so trivial Is that uh, it's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned He is not mentioned by any name There are also no prayers to God There are no prophets who speak from God. There are no religious sacrifices to God. There's no mention of the promised land from God. And even God's people are just called Jews. In the entire book of Esther, God is entirely absent. Or maybe it's more correct to say, God is entirely invisible. The lack of any explicit mention of God in the Book of Esther has of course caused some problems in people's minds over the centuries. Uh, Some wonder why it's even in the Bible. Some have called it a secularized uh, book in the Bible. And some think it doesn't have any use for God's people. In fact, uh, most famously, Martin Luther did not like the book of Esther. He called himself an enemy to the book of Esther and said, quote, I wish it had not come to us at all. Some even go so far as to try to fill in the gaps of the things that they perceive as missing in Esther. And so they put in explicit references of God uh, excuse me, uh, in the Septuagint, which was a group of Jewish scholars uh, who came together to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek at a certain time in history, um, in the book of Esther, added large sections um, as they translated Esther. So they put in prayers or comments. The, this is part of a prayer that's added in from Esther in the Septuagint. It reads, Lord, you king, you who rule over all, for all is in your power. There's none who can oppose you when you choose to save Israel. For you made heaven and earth and every wonderful thing under heaven, and you are Lord over all, and no one can resist you who are the Lord. You know all things. You know, Lord. They, they put these things in and to, try to, to try to fix it, to try to patch up what seems wrong. So that section added in, that sounds more like the Bible. You know, that, that they fixed the problem. Or did they? Maybe the book of Esther is not broken as it is. Maybe the author of the book of Esther is trying to show us something. Maybe the invisibility of God in Esther is not a problem for God, but is actually a pointer to God in a very clever way. We know that the whole Bible points us to the glory of God. In fact, just before Esther and Nehemiah, Nehemiah's calling for the goodness of God, and and just after in the book of Job, Job is described as one who fears God, and so Esther calls us to similar things, to look for his goodness, to fear the Lord. But she, the, the book does it then in, in a unique way, so we need to learn how to read Esther well. It's very similar in that sense to the book of of Ecclesiastes. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, it's certainly worth a read. It's a strange book. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There, let me get there. There's just a few chapters here in the Old Testament, but this is how the book of Ecclesiastes opens. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then he talks about this toil until we skip down to verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Hmm. Vanity, some translate that emptiness or meaningless Life is empty. It's an unhappy business. It's the chasing after wind. That's weird That's not something that the Bible should should say and so when we read this this sounds more like a bad philosophy course than it does something out of the scripture so we might be confused or try to fix the book of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom, and so we have to read it with wisdom. When we read the whole book, in fact, you can do this on your own. You don't need to be a scholar. If you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you can see that the author's not actually saying that this is how life goes. The author is saying that he has looked at life on its own terms, that he's looked at everything under the sun. He's looked for meaning and purpose in his work, in pleasures, in women, in wealth. He's tried on all the pants in his closet. And on their own, those things were empty. But in the end, the, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is basically saying, now after I've done all of this, now I can see that life is about fearing God And keeping his commands, and and there is fullness, there is satisfaction. When we come to the book of Esther, we have to read with a similar sort of wisdom. The author is then not telling us that God is actually absent. The author is showing us what life sometimes seems like from the ground, What life looks like under the sun. And sometimes there, God is invisible. I mean, we we, we have the Bible, which is which is good. It's it's God's word breathed out by God. We don't experience God primarily through dreams or for audible voice. When God speaks to us, it's through his word. So we have God's word and we, we have Jesus who was, uh, you know, the image of the invisible God, God with skin on it, and people felt him and touched him and, and walked with him, and, and we cling to these things, and we should. But still, day to day, God is invisible, unseen. And that can leave us feeling confused or scared or hurting especially when we're going through hard times. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, a very famous Christian writer, uh, wrote a, a, a piece called A Grief Observed After His Wife Joy Died of Cancer. And he was asking the question, where is God? This is a very mature Christian in the later years of his life, and he writes this. What do you find? You find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this, What can this mean? Why is he, God, so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in the time of trouble? A modern songwriter, Andrew Peterson, uh, says a similar thing in his song The Silence of God, the song begins like this. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. And when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heavens only answer is the silence of God. Perhaps you know what that's like, to cry out to God and hear nothing. Both of these men, by the way, Andrew Peterson and C.S. Lewis, both Christians, both strong Christians at that, but they're wrestling with God because they feel like they're losing their direction, losing their mind, losing their faith. It can feel like a cruel joke played by a big brother when he tells you that you're playing hide and seek. You go over there and count to 10, and then he just walks away and leaves you then looking and looking and looking for someone who is not there. That's a heavy, that's a heavy experience. The writers of the Bible know what that's like. They know the feeling of, of loss and confusion. The Psalms are full of it. Psalm 13 is just one, it begins like this, Psalm 13, starting in verse one. David says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes or else I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You can hear the cry of David there. How long will you hide Lord, because it seems as if the enemy has prevailed. In the book of Esther, we see the king's official Haman will meet him a bit later when he decrees the extermination of the Jews as a result of a personal vendetta. How long will you hide, O Lord? And here in the first chapter, when this drunken King Ahasuerus is throwing around his power and wealth and women, how long will you hide, O Lord? You can see the irony in the book that while this King Ahasuerus is waving his scepter around, we don't even see one glimmer of the scepter of the Lord, the King of Kings. Now why does this happen? Why does God remain silent and invisible? Hmm. The answer to this is not easy. And we have to acknowledge that sometimes God is silent as a result of sin or judgment. So one example is King Saul in the Old Testament who had gone his own way for a very long time. He finally faces a particular battle and he's asking for help from the Lord. He's seeking God and he's just met with silence. And so Saul, instead of repenting of his sin, Instead of relying upon the Lord's mercy and trusting in the Lord's timing, Saul then tries to climb over the fence and get in a different way. And so he he goes to the witch of Endor and tries to call up the dead to get an answer. That's not good, by the way. Sin just makes us crazy. Sin hardens our hearts and sin clogs our ears until we become deaf to God, or worse, God becomes deaf to us. This is why we need Jesus, by the way. We can freely come to him and ask for salvation, ask for forgiveness, ask him to change our hearts and draw us back to God. God. Even a believer who's trusted in Jesus for many years still needs to trust in Jesus because a believer can get caught up in sin as well when a believer surrenders to his own impatience, to his own lusts, to his own fear, to his own pride. Those things will crowd our hearts and they'll cloud our ears and our eyes. We still belong to God then, but we need the Spirit to draw us back home in repentance. So sometimes the silence of God really is a result of sin, but not always. In fact, often silence of God comes from other things. That seems to be the case with David in the psalm that we read earlier. That seems to be the case for Job and for C.S. Lewis and for Andrew Peterson and, and in the book of Esther. So if God's silence then is not a particular result of particular sins then, why does God remain invisible then? That's a much harder question. And to wrestle with this, I often turn to a particular verse in Romans. We'll ride this here to the end. Romans chapter 15. This verse comes after the very lovely section at the end of Romans 11, where there's this big uh, doxology. Oh, the depth and riches of, and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How unscrutable are his ways? So, in a sense, we can't... We can't dig too far into the mind of God because there are some things there that just just don't belong to us. But here in Romans, we get a bit of help for our wrestle. This is a single verse here now in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Paul here says everything that was written in the Scriptures is to instruct us, to teach us. That's all the Scriptures, including Esther, where God seems to just be absent. That he's invisible. And all of these instructions do three things endurance, encouragement, and hope. Endurance, because sometimes, somehow, seasons of silence strengthen us, they mature us, they build our muscle. They train us to rely upon the faithfulness of God more than our sense of God. So the scriptures here will will bring endurance. It will also bring encouragement because we feel less alone here when we feel alone. When we're in a rut, we know that that rut was marked there by someone who had gone in it before us. There are many, 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 many of God's people throughout the centuries who have faced the silence of God. And God still carried them through. It will increase our endurance. And then lastly, it will increase our our hope. We'll get to see how that plays out in the book Of Esther, but not at the beginning. Because there's not a whole lot of hope to be put in that current king, King Ahasuerus. He's unstable and he's too easily influenced by too wild things. That king is not in control. But we know that our God is in control. God here without a single plague, without a single miraculous sign, without a single word, proves his own power over everything. It's the loving kindness of God to give us the book of Esther because by it he shows us that even though he is silent, he is not absent. And even though he's invisible, he is not inactive. Would you pray with me? Our God, thank you for your word. Would you help us in these coming weeks as we journey through this part of your word? And Esther, would you help us to trust you to trust your presence with your people. And Lord, would you increase our endurance, increase our encouragement, and increase our hope in you. We do trust you, our God, as king over all. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.